So let me just read. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to, the, to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this community. We pray now, God, that by Your Spirit You would illuminate our eyes that we might understand these truths, these truths about heaven, God, and who will be there. We pray now, Lord Jesus, that You fill my lungs with Your air and that You speak Your words through me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're finishing our series on heaven. And uh, I've loved this series. I may look back at my life and realize this was the most important series that I ever did. I hope there's many more to come. But I think this is such an important topic to regain, to confess out loud, to proclaim that God's kingdom is coming in part now, but will come in fullness in the future, in this place we call heaven. This is not yet that place. But He's bringing it, and He will bring it fully. That is such important news to share. And so, tonight we're finishing by saying, who is heaven? Who can we expect to find in this place called heaven? And as I do speak on this tonight, I, I do so um, not lightly. I, I think we'll, we'll just begin to talk here about some very important matters, and I pray that it's not flippant in any way. The who of heaven is very, very important and very, very sensitive as well. Um, this week, I, I, felt, I felt the spiritual tension just preparing uh, because we'll talk about heaven and we'll talk about the place that is not heaven. And I think for so many of us, um, 
we're reminded of death, that it's a present reality, that it's, for me, a person missing from my dinner table. And um, I asked if I could share this so that we could be praying for them. We have um, friends, family members here at Sedaris who just this last Friday lost a daughter and a sister, Tyler and Trisha Smith, and they're actually here tonight. Uh, and I just want to ask that you be praying for them. Uh, Dory uh, went to be with the Lord on Friday. She's been fighting cancer. And um, I met Dory one time, and I found myself uh, weeping this week, just thinking of her and uh, being reminded of my own sister who has gone on to be with the Lord. So if you would just keep the whole Smith family in your prayers, and um, I know I will. Uh, death is real, and it's at our doorstep, even, even though many of us are young and, and uh, we feel like it's something yet distant. That's definitely not uh, true. So keep them in your prayers and uh, just pray for a covering and a protection over Tyler and Tricia and Dory's mom, Mary, who's here with us tonight as well. This is a really important promise uh, that Jesus gives us, that he is not done with this earth, he's not done with us, that he's with us and we go to him and then he's going to bring us back with him when he returns. We talked about that last week. So as we talk about the who of heaven, I want to look at this passage in Romans because it's, it's so important uh, to understand how this all works. So if you would uh, uh, turn back there with me, Romans chapter 10. I guess if you'd throw it back up on the screen. Uh, let's take a look at this passage. Romans chapter 10. The context here is that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's trying to explain to them what the relationship is like between God's original people, the Israelites, who are God's chosen people, and the church now that is full of Jews and Gentiles. And he's trying to explain how for many Israelites, they were missing out on salvation because they were not seeing the centrality of Jesus. And they were looking to the old ways, the old promises, which had, Paul will say, been fulfilled in Jesus Christ when He came, lived, died, and rose from the grave. So, that's sort of the context. And he's, and he's explaining and so there'll be words he'll use, and he's primarily talking about the Jewish people. But of course, in our day, he can be talking about any one of us. So, let's go ahead and read the first few verses again. Romans 10, verse 1 says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, there's talking about the nation of Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of, righteous, of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone 
who believes. Now, uh, what, what, is, what is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, there are many good people, many good Jews who are following the law to the best of their ability. And yet, they've missed out. Their own righteousness is never enough. What they need is to put on the righteousness of Christ. And as we'll see, that happens through faith in Jesus. Now, how does this relate to us today? Well, plenty of good people. In fact, if you're like me, you know many people who would not consider themselves Christians who are better people than you, right? These are good people. They're loving. They're trying their best. They're working hard. They're unselfish. They're helpful. They're conscientious. They're humanitarian. These are good people. But what Paul is saying that that no matter how good you are, even if you are one of God's chosen people of Israel, that's not enough. That's not enough to be saved. That's not enough to find yourself amongst the who of heaven. As I was talking about this, I was thinking about Bill Gates. This is a zealous man. He is zealous for good things. He is zealous for the right things. He gives away more money, time, energy than probably any human being that has or ever will live. It's hard to imagine another person like Bill Gates. And yet Paul is saying that without Jesus, it doesn't matter when it comes to salvation and heaven. Doesn't matter how many billions of dollars you give to good, righteous things. If you do not have Jesus, it's not enough. Look at verse 2. He says this, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of, righteousness, of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. Paul is not degrading them. He's just saying they do not know that the righteousness of God comes through Jesus. That the only way to match the righteousness of God, which is what it takes to be in the presence of God, as we've said, that is heaven. The only way that comes is by uniting yourself to the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's the only way. Let me give you an illustration that might, that might help you understand this. I don't know if this ever happened to you. I don't know if all teachers do this. I had a teacher, I think it was the sixth grade, I was trying to remember, and gave us a test. This was the hardest test that I'd ever seen. It seemed pretty much impossible. There wasn't enough time to finish all the questions. There the material, it's almost like we had never been taught it. It was uh, way above at least my grade level, but I frantically worked my way through it. Now when I look back on it, and I, think back, and I thought back on it, I thought, man, that was interesting how the teacher was a little extra stern 
when she said, make sure you read all the instructions before you begin. And, of course, I didn't because there was so much work to be done. There were so many questions to get through. I didn't have time to read the instructions. I just started going. And then when the time was up and we got to the end, the teacher said, all right, how'd that go? Let's just all turn back to the first page again and read these instructions together. And the instruction said, near the end of the instructions, thank you for reading the instructions. Now, would you please turn to the back of the page and simply write your name on the paper and you will receive 100%. Has anybody else had this happen to them? Yeah. Of course, I don't like to be fooled, so I tried to talk my way out of it. <laughs> well, 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 you know, I read most of them, but not all of them. Only a few of my classmates actually had the knowledge of these instructions. And, and then I look back and I remember looking, why aren't these people panicking? Why aren't they frantically working their way through the test? Did they just give up? Or did they know something that I don't know? This maybe helps us understand how salvation works. Paul is telling us, no matter how great your zeal is for being righteous, no matter how good your intention is to do the best on this test called life that you could possibly do, you're not going to cheat, you're not going to do any of that. It actually doesn't matter if you haven't read through the full instruction of God. Now imagine God's instructions to his test sounding something like this. Go ahead, turn to the last page, write the name of the person whose grade you would like to be associated with, and I will give you their grade. So you could turn to the end, put the name of anybody you want. It was always for me the really smart girl that I would always borrow her notes that's who I probably would have picked. Or maybe I'd pick that Jewish kid who always wore sandals. That would have been a good idea. <laughs> because what Paul is saying is that if you really understand the gospel, if you really understand the good news of Jesus, if you really understand the way to salvation, all you have to do is turn to the end of the test and write down, I'm with Jesus. And then you get his score, which is a perfect score, which is perfect righteousness. That's wild. But that's the way it works. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who writes, I'm with Jesus, will be in heaven. It's clear from here and other passages 
that who will receive salvation is all who believe in their heart that Jesus died for their sin and that God rose Jesus from the grave and that Jesus is their salvation. And so they confess it. They make public with their mouth that Jesus is my Master. He is the Lord of my life. It doesn't work to just write on the back page, I'm with whoever has the best grade. You have to make a decision. You have to choose, even this day, who you will serve. Now how will people know about these instructions? How will people know about this Jesus? How will people know that this is the way it works? Verse 14 tells us. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says this, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. That's how people know all the instructions. Someone has to tell them. So who will preach? Not just me. Not just pastors and evangelists. This is for everyone. Everyone who has found Jesus to be true is called to tell somebody else about the way to heaven and that His name is Jesus. That's how people hear. And after they hear, they can believe. And after they believe, they can confess. So now, what does that tell us about the who of heaven? Let me try to make this as clear as possible. Heaven is the place of Jesus. So we could say this. Jesus is the first who of heaven. Who is heaven? It's Jesus. You're made for a person and you're made for a place. Jesus is the person. Heaven is the place. They're a package. You can't get heaven without Jesus or Jesus without heaven. So everyone and anyone who says yes to Jesus is a part of the who of heaven. That is great news. That is great news. That it's not your own righteousness, but it's that you know Jesus. So if heaven is the presence of Jesus, is there a place without the presence of Jesus? This is the who of a place called hell. Everyone and anyone who says no to Jesus, this is their destination. So if you do not like Jesus, of course, you will not like heaven. And as we'll see, as we continue to study the life of Jesus, you will always see this, that Jesus never forces Himself on anyone. 
And that's why hell exists. Because people will say no to Jesus. This is the place that is void of His presence. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, of those who die without saying yes to Jesus. It says they will be punished with everlasting destruction. And watch this. Shut off from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Many, many will, will reply, and may, maybe you're in this boat, isn't this traditional notion of a literal place called hell just a fairy tale believed by superstitious people or an invention of the church to keep people in their place? I like what C.S. Lewis says in reply to that. And we can all agree, and I think anyone that is a thinking person agrees that C.S. Lewis is one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century. So he's not just a simple man. He's a thoughtful man. He says this, I have met no person who fully disbelieved in hell and also had a living and life-giving belief in heaven. Which is to say, the biblical teaching on both destinations stands or falls together. You cannot have heaven as we know and hope for it without hell. You cannot have a place without the presence of sin without removing the sin. You cannot have you cannot remove the sin without the work of Jesus applied. And so for those who refuse Jesus, refuse to apply His work to their life, that do not want His presence, then this is their destiny. So what can we know about this destination we call hell? Well, I'll say this first. That often... The notions that we have, even, even the imagery that's used in the Bible. Um, in fact, one of the most common words used uh, that's translated as hell is the word Gehenna, which is a literal place outside the walls of Jerusalem, a place where they would burn their trash. So when Jesus talks about that place, people would know what he's talking about. Now, will there actually be fire? I don't know, and I don't think the Bible actually tells us. But I do know, I do know this, that the place we call hell will be at least as bad as Gehenna. Now remember, when we talk about heaven, we talk about figurative language, what we're saying is that when we try to talk, or when the Bible speaks about heaven, we're speaking about something that's so much greater than the thing in and of itself. Because there's not human language good enough to talk about the glories of heaven. The glories of standing face to face with God. We just can't. But we try, and we're not saying nothing. We're just maybe not fully grasping it. But we can kind of see these signposts pointing towards this great, glorious existence. Well, we can say the same thing about the imagery in the Bible used for hell. That if Jesus is picking a place like Gehenna, if He's using words like the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, we can know that He's choosing that language because He's trying to point to something that is at least, and most definitely, worse than that. Now whether that comes in the form of physical, unending torment, I do not know. I just know it's a place 
that we would not want or wish upon anyone. But it's a real place. And it's a place without Jesus. So let me say this one more time because this is the most important point of tonight's talk. Jesus is the most important who of heaven. And so the most distinct characteristic of the other destination that we call hell is that the who of that place will not include Jesus. To which many in our world today would cry, Hallelujah! Actually, to be more specific, to cry, Hallel! Because the word Hallelujah is a transliteration of two Hebrew words. Hallel, which is an exhortation of praise, and Yah, which means to God. So when we cry hallelujah, we say praise be to God. Whereas today, many people, and for eternity, many people will sing simply praise. And they most likely will mean praise to myself. C.S. Lewis gets at this best when he says hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. He continues and says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Giving them the freedom that they've always wanted. Including the freedom from His presence. Lewis goes on and says this as well. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Earth is the in-between world touched by both heaven and hell. Earth leads directly into heaven or directly into hell according to a choice between the two. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven the worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. For anyone who says yes to Jesus, this is the closest we will ever get to hell. For anyone who says no to Jesus, this present life is the closest they will ever come to heaven. This is sobering truth, but it's truth. But it's truth. And our job is to proclaim truth. To speak truth. So who should we expect to see in heaven? C.S. Lewis writes this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope. Soft underfoot. Without sudden turnings. Without milestones. Without signposts. For every American who believes that they are going to hell there are 120 who believe they are going to heaven. For every American who believes they are going to hell, there are 120 who believe they are going to heaven. This optimism, unfortunately, stands in contrast to Jesus' own words. In Matthew 7, He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. 
so important to say this uh, one more time. If you find yourself walking the wide road, it's not simply turning to a new path. Heaven is not just in the opposite direction as hell. Heaven is a very distinct place. It's ruled by a very distinct person whose name is Jesus. You must turn and find the path to Jesus, not just away from hell. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. I have sinned. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's the sin that separates us from a holy God. No one just stumbles upon forgiveness. No one just stumbles upon the removal of sin. There is only one way to remove the stain of sin. And that is the blood of Jesus. That is the only way. It's the only blood. It's the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross of Calvary. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Until and unless our sin problem is removed, the only place that we can go is out of the presence of Jesus. That is our default destination. It's the place Jesus Himself calls hell. Now the Bible also talks about a very specific idea. It talks about a book. It's called the Book of Life. Revelation 20, 12-15 says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice two references to books. And they're not the same books. The first book, plural, says books were opened. And then it says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then there's a second book. It's the singular book of life. And anyone's name not found in that book will not enter heaven. So here's what is happening. And here's what will happen to us. We will stand before Jesus and the, the first kind of books that record everything that we've done and everything that we haven't done will be opened and our life will be revealed. You understand what he's saying? Everything that you've ever done will be revealed. Be honest. How are you feeling right now thinking about that? Anyone with any semblance of imagination that tries to think upon that moment, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, whether you know that will actually happen or not, will experience a moment of terror. Right? Do you feel that? Even if you are a very good person, even if you're very good at covering up the terror that comes upon you when you think about that moment. You feel it, don't you? Now, if you do not believe at this moment that this will actually happen, 
then a good project for you is to try to figure out why you feel, even if only brief, a little bit of terror. I think it reveals something about the truth of this moment, that it is coming. Now here's the good news. This is is very good news. That after seeing our life revealed before us, to see that we have fallen woefully short of the glory of God, Jesus will pick up a second book, the book of life. And He'll open that book. And He'll search for our name. And as Roman 10 tells us, that if we have believed in our heart and confess with our mouth the name of Jesus as our Lord, that as He looks through that book, He will find our name written. And because our name is written in the second book, that list of deeds found in the first book, we can know with utter confidence that it has been nailed to the cross of Christ. Well, I'll say it again. <laughs> we can be sure that the first book is, is nailed to the cross of Christ. Come on. I need a hype man. That's good. <laughs> and we can know that the very next words that come out of Jesus' mouth will be so sweet. Here's what He will say to us. Welcome home. Want me to say that again? Welcome home. Now, for those who in this life never by faith unite themselves to Jesus, even if they have a pretty stellar account in the first book, but Jesus cannot find their name written in the second book. Here is the heart-wrenching truth. And it should wrench your heart to think about this. That the next words that those people will hear come out of the lips of Jesus are these. I never knew you. Depart from me. But this seems so harsh. I want to say three things about feeling like that is harsh. The first is this. Part of that feeling is actually very, very godly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit hated this fact, this reality so much that God the Father sent God the Son into the world to die in place of those whose account in the first book is what it is. If God hates that so much, I think it's okay that we hate the idea of that. I think it's okay to hope that as many people as possible will find that their name is written in the book of life. I think that's a very godly reaction. But to say that God has gotten it wrong It's just to totally miss the point. 
Randy Alcorn says it this way, if we understood God's nature and ours, we would be shocked, not that some people could go to hell, because where else would they go? Out of the presence of Jesus. But that any would be permitted into heaven by denying the endlessness or existence of hell, do we not minimize Christ's work on the cross? Those who argue that Christians should take the higher road of Christ's love overlook one conspicuous reality. In the Bible, it is Jesus who talks more than anyone about hell. So we have this part of us that's godly to say, ah, oh, I don't want that to be true. But then there's a second part that I think feeds into this feeling of harshness. And I think it actually comes more from our humanness than our godliness. And that is our wanting to escape the truth that we so often choose ourselves over our neighbor, over our friend, comfort and reputation of our own name, and so keep this good news from them. You see that? We hate that it's on us, in part, to be the deliverers of good news. And so we choose to keep the news from them out of selfish motive. And then we try to change what we think about what Jesus has made very clear. So the hope is godly, but to presume upon God's goodness that He might just save everyone in a way that He has not told us that He would is, I think, sinful. He told us how to get to heaven. He told us who would be in heaven. He spared nothing to make it possible that we would go to heaven. And so refusing to take that news and present it clearly to those that we care about is not God's unfairness. I think it's a conviction that we need to do something differently. The third thing I'll say about this is that who can know? Who can know who has truly been united to Jesus and who will be with Him, who will be in heaven? The answer to that question is that only God knows. If, if you still have your finger there, feel free to turn to Romans chapter 11, just one chapter over from what we read at the beginning. Paul is telling us this very fact. In verse 33, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Paul is reminding us that we are not the judges. We are not the counselors to God of who is and is not worthy of His presence. Who He should save or will save. So we do not know. We do not know. But we know the way to heaven is through Jesus. It is not through the life that you've lived. It is not through the account sheet of good and bad. It is through, at any point in your life, have you said yes to Jesus? Have you said, I'm with Him? There are countless stories of people who have had visions and dreams apart from the traditional proclaiming, preaching of the Gospel. And I believe God is saving those people through Jesus. 
As we look at the Old Testament, we see that saints, before they knew the name of the Messiah, were saved by faith in Yahweh, God the Father, knowing that He would send someone whose name was Jesus, even though they did not know His name. And so we must not fret. We must not fear that God will somehow mess this up. That He will somehow be incomplete in His salvation process. He will save. We must trust God. This is probably one of the hardest ways that we are called to trust God. And also, we must not fail to preach the Gospel. We cannot say just because God can save in any way that He chooses, that He does not save through the preaching of the good news. He makes that very, very clear. So will there be people who have never heard the Gospel translated into their own language that are saved? I think yes. How often does this happen? I do not know. Jesus is loving. Jesus is just. Jesus is enough. And Jesus is fully aware of all the challenges and the complications to people hearing, believing, confessing. We must trust Jesus. So look now, if you would, at Revelation 7-9. I think it gives a, an amazing heavenly vision of who we should expect to see in heaven. After this, the Apostle John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is Jesus. Every people group, every language, every tribe will be represented in the who of heaven. It's a truly amazing thing. And you know what? Somehow, God will take all those things that divide all these peoples and reverse them. So the language difference. Not sure how it works. If we get a new common language or we can just understand everyone speaking in their native tongues. Language that so often divides. The Babel of Babel will be reversed. This was foreshadowed at Pentecost. You know what also will be reversed? Politics. All the political division, not just within this country, but through all the nations, will be reversed because we will have one King. The true King. No one will argue that. We will fully worship the one King, Jesus. Because everyone who is there will want to be worshiping the King. So that's some of the who of heaven. And let me just finish with a few so what's. So what does this mean for our life now? First, let me say this. I have a strong expectation that I will come to meet in heaven many people who I did not know desired to be with Jesus. But I also expect that there will be many people who I thought knew Jesus who will not be there. And so we must not dare wait and see when it comes to the who. 
We should not just cross our fingers and hope that our names are written in the book of life. We should not just hope that those we love and care for, those who live next door, those who we work with, will just somehow come to know Jesus. They might. We should pray that this would happen. But the cause of Christ compels us to do something different. The second thing I want to say is this. We will recognize our loved ones in heaven. This is such good news. We will recognize them. This is divinely designed. To see people that we love is a part of the joy of heaven. We are not designed to be solitary mystics in heaven. We are not just going to love God alone. But we're going to be like God Himself. And God is a lover of men and women as well. We see this in Jesus' life. He loved each person and He loved them differently and specially. He loved John different than Peter, Mary different than Martha. So too, we will love people in the eternal heaven uniquely and specially. Our family, our friends, we will love them in unique ways even as we love them now. And so some people will ask, and this is a fair question, if we have emotions in heaven, which I think we do, why don't we become inconsolably sad about those loved ones who we knew on earth that are not in heaven? Well, one thing I can say about that is this. Revelation 7-7 says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I like what Peter Kreft says about this. He says, I think we will not be sad about those who are in hell for the same reason that God is not. According to the Sermon on the Mount, which I referenced earlier, He will say to them, I never knew you. God will somehow wipe away our memories in this part of life. This is not falsehood, it's not ignorance, but it's truth. For in a sense, this is still Peter Kreft talking, the damned no longer are, that is, they no longer are in the most real place of all, heaven. And so somehow, believe this, with we will not be sitting thinking about all those who are not in heaven, but we will be enjoying those who we knew on earth that are there. And I bring up these two points because I think it's very, very important for the so what of this particular idea of heaven. If we don't understand this part of heaven, that people are in heaven, that people are a part of heaven, that relationships are a part of heaven, that, that things we start now will continue to heaven, then I think we will miss out or we'll greatly damage our relationships here and now. Every ounce of blood, sweat, tears that you put into a relationship on this earth is always worth it. Period. There is no such thing as a waste of time when it comes to relationship. There will be no regret in investing in people, even if they never say yes to Jesus. We should not isolate our relationships to people that we know are part of the who of heaven. It is not a mistake you sacrificing for people that will never respond to the Gospel of Jesus. And the reason that I know that is that Jesus Christ Himself hung on the cross 
and received upon Himself wrath. And yet some people don't say yes to His offer of grace. So invest deeply in people. Invest deeply in relationships. And trust God will redeem all that you spend and sacrifice in the life to come. I believe that He will. I believe that it will not be lost. I believe that as all things, God will use it for His glory. Would you pray with me? Father God, we know that these questions of who are not easy, they are not in our control, and they are at times very painful. But God, we thank You that You care about people more than we ever could care. God, we thank You that You have not spared any expense to make heaven a real possibility for all those who believe in their heart that Jesus died for them and rose from the grave. And then who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. God, no matter the life we have lived, no matter the mixed record attached to our name, we know that if we attach to Your name, to the name of Your Son Jesus, that we will be saved. God, that is such good news. We thank You for sharing that news with us. We thank You for giving us instruction on how to become one of the who of heaven. God, we pray that You would give us courage and boldness and endurance to share these instructions in Your perfect timing and Your perfect plan with those whom You want us to share. Jesus, we, we now think of those who have gone before us. I think of my sister Kim. We love, we thank You that we can have this confidence and assurance that they are sitting now in Your presence if they knew You. We thank You for giving Your life for theirs. We thank You for saving them. We ask that You would make sure that they know that we are so excited to be reunited with them and all the saints who make up the peoples of heaven. We pray this only because of You, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. And we pray so much more. Amen.